Hello, welcome to Sonic Talk, episode 456, which uh, quite neatly ties in with uh, uh, one of Ampex's more famous tape formulations. Mm-hmm. We might talk about that a little bit later, because I was looking back at that, I was thinking, God, that's such an, it seems so arcane now. But as we all know, it was the stalwart of the industry for many, many years, including my formative ones. Um, but I want to say thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you're not sure what this is all about, we are a music technology podcast. We talk about live production, production, studio work, synthesizers, software, drum machines, all kinds of things to do with the making and creating, um, sometimes marketing, performing of music slash electronic music. So that's basically a lot. So uh, we also have a competition. Uh, Isotope very kindly have donated a copy of Vocal Synth, which is their uh, four-in-one vocal processor and vocoder plugin. So stay tuned to that. Uh, back about halfway through the show, which runs to about an hour if you've not seen it before. Maybe less, maybe more. Um, anyway, thank you very much. I want to say hello to our chat room, because if you're watching this via YouTube, we also have our own IRC chat room, which is at sonicstate.com forward slash live, where the use the YouTube feed will be playing alongside that chat room. So pick and choose, or have both, although I'm trying to monitor both, and I tell you, it's a nightmare, but, but then I am actually producing and presenting the show at the same time. Anyway, okay. I want to say thank you to our sponsors, thank you to all the chat rooms, and we'll say, uh, we're waiting for for one more guest, but we are going to say hello to Mr. Gaz Williams, who's stepped in once again with the possibility of being the only other voice on the show. Good to you. Good for you, Gaz. Gaz, of course, bass player, music technologist, music producer, all those things. Ah, yeah. I love being here. It's so nice. I feel so happy to be able to waffle <laughs> for <laughs> to, to so many lovely people. It's, yeah. you know, such a friendly, wonderful uh you know, the, the the chat room and everyone makes us all so welcome. I always feel really chuffed. It's brilliant. Thank yes. you, everyone, for tuning in. I agree. That's a very yeah. good a very good sentiment. And, of course, um, uh, I was going to say, ah, oh, I think I see a Rich Hilton. That could be perfect timing then, I think. Mm-hmm. It could be absolutely perfect timing. Let me just go and uh, see if I can get Rich to be full screen. We have a slightly different... Yep. I hear you, Rich, but I don't think you hear me looking at the... I hear you. I hear you. I'm, like, lost in why doesn't my normal rig work. Ah. And I'm unable to monitor anything in headphones. Blair, as I am able to monitor it in speakers. So I don't really understand, with the way it's set up, why that should be. Ah, well, I hope it's not a hardware failure. I hope it's just a glitch in the machine, at least. I'm not sure. I'm really, I'm just, I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, Rich Hilton, of course. It's not going to get much better than, hold on. I can use headphones at least, but it's not going to get much better than this. Rich Hilton, of course. uh, Nile Rogers studio guy. uh, Also uh, on the tour with Sheik a lot. He's uh, back from tour. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. So I will let him, I will let him deal with that issue and we can come back to it let me know when he's he's got his headphones i i I will save his we don't want to see a a man dressing in headphones i think we'll wait till he's ready and bring him on (laughs) here we go Uh i don't know well i suppose i should make noise and then i'll be able to tell whether or not his (laughs) headphones are working otherwise i've I've got only one channel even here i am i'm very confused very confused well rich it's okay we can live with it without the your the beautiful mellifluous tones via your large diaphragm condenser mic we can survive 
<laughs> Sometimes stuff happens. Well, you can imagine, you know, you know what it's like. It's, I, I will honestly say, Rich, I think this is the first time you've ever had a technical problem in I don't know how many years. So I think you're, in terms of, the, uh, in terms of you know, what, what you could get away with, you've got a lot in the bank. <laughs> how are you, Rich, apart from your technical issues anyway? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Happy, uh, uh, happy I, to be home for a day or two. And then we go back out tomorrow. I just want to say that in the YouTube chat room, Kevin Doricourt has says, hey, Rich, don't freak out. Excellent. Chic-related technical joke. I like that. That's niche. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, well, let's crack on. Uh, well, I don't know why we'll crack on, because obviously this time of year, uh, things tend to get a little bit quieter as lots of people in marketing departments uh, take breaks. So there's less perhaps to discuss. But I'm sure we'll find our way through. Um, actually, episode 456, this got me thinking because I thought, oh, that number has a great significance. Because obviously, um, at least at me, when I used to record to tape, uh, first of all, we had uh, we would record to 8-track. So it would be quarter-inch tape. Then we had a 16-track, which would be half-inch tape. Then I had a 3M 24-inch, 24 track 2 inch for a while which is also and we all used ampex 456 456 uh formulation and i was looking into this and the whole i mean it just brought out all sorts of memories of kind of wow you know that there were different formulations and different sides of the atlantic would perhaps prefer different ones and the tape formulation would would actually affect the way that the recorded music was sounded and the way you had to to, to set up the tape machines. It was, I mean, Rich, it, do you, you must remember sitting with your head in the cabinet and one of those little screwdrivers adjusting the bias and the tones. Did you ever have to do that or were there people? I not only had to do it, I actually got good at it and uh, did a bunch of work both in the professional and in the consumer world on tape machines like that. I, I uh, had good training from some very smart industry people at very early on. And so, uh, yeah, did lots of it. Enjoyed and appreciated the differences between machines, between tape formulations, the whole nine. I loved it. I was an enthusiast. An enthusiast. I remember um, I had, because I bought a, a friend of mine had it, because what used to happen is when we were doing remixes, obviously what would happen is that we'd get FedExed or whatever, a bunch of two-inch tapes, which would have whatever that, but this was before people used to lay things off to DAP because it was quite difficult to resync it. So we'd get the tapes, and then I'd have to book into a studio, book a couple of hours to, to bring the thing up on the tape, and then go, right, okay, lay this off to either to my 8-track or let's spin things out to DAT or whatever. And it was a kind of... So we ended up buying our own two-inch tape machine, for, which was an old 3M, which had that tape path that went round and then just round a kind of head like that so it was it wasn't like the otari uh style or uh the ampex style it was at its very uh, like a rotary head or something on it i can't remember what it had it was a no it wasn't a rotary head it was a closed loop system it ran it ran the tape down through a loop path that's right to get heads no capstans yeah. i t not capstans tensioning i can't remember now it was it was a, a very impressive thing but i for the life of me couldn't figure out and the worst thing is obviously if you get sent a tape from somebody who is not using the formulation that the studio was using then some either yourself or a, a, a tape op would have to get in there and recalibrate the machine which would obviously enhance the cost greatly because it's another hour or so i don't know how, how long did it used to take to reset up for a different different formulation of tape 20 minutes 20 minutes well that's yeah. you that's you okay anybody apart from you they're rich 
<laughs> even on even on a machine that didn't have controls that controlled all 24, that you had to actually do each of the 24, assuming it's not too far away to begin with, um, and it's been well-maintained, 20 minutes. If not, you know, who knows? Kind of like the problem I'm looking at over here. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work, you're not quite sure, you know, how long it's going to take. But, uh, um, yeah. So it's really instructive. I'm so glad that I learned this stuff. And it really taught me a lot about electromechanics and things I didn't know about. And it was a real education, learning how tape machines work and why and getting to know how to make them work as well as they should. So I'll ask you this question then. In terms of tape formulation, do you have any favorites? I mean, this is very niche, I realize. But I was just curious because I I, we only ever really had Ampex over here most of the time. Well, Ampex and 3M made competing high-end tape products along with AGFA and BASF. And uh, those were sort of the main ones. And then there were some others as well. Did, did you have a... Actually, I was really young. There were a ton of companies making tape. Magnetic, you know, uh, particle-based plastic tape. Because consumer tape recording had become very popular in the late 50s and early 60s. <clears throat> and that was my first exposure to it, is using consumer machines doing sound-on-sound type things and microphone tricks to add more parts. Excuse me. You're um, welcome. So, uh, yes, uh, I guess what I used the most of was Ampex and 3M, mostly Ampex, but also some of the high-end 3M stuff. And I was... I probably stopped interacting with analog tape machines about... <laughs> 28 years ago. So I didn't use some of the later formulations, but Ampex 456 was sort of the industry standard for Ampex at that time. And 3M had a 250 tape formulation that was sort of their high-end tape at the time. And different people argued in favor of different ones. But I think most the people I worked with preferred the Ampex to, this, to the 3M. And there was a difference in the way they sounded. Well, I, as I understand it, was it down to the way the bottom end responded? Not so much in terms of what I heard as the difference between those two formulations, but the difference in the way the bottom end uh, responds has a lot to do with things like tape speed. And different machines resonate down there at a different frequency. Um, huh. Wow. A lot of people were using uh, scooter machines, Ampex machines, 3M machines. Uh, this is like the NMCI machines, and this is towards the end of the analog, 24-track, two-inch, ubiquitous era. And the uh, yeah, the Ataris were the ones that were probably most over here. The Atari MTR9s. I know, Gaz. I mean, I'm guessing you know you've probably been recording long enough to kind of. Did you what what tape machine did you? What was your last tape machine that you had? Multi-track tape machine. A Studer, not my own, but in the studio I used to do stuff. A st uh, Studer. Um God, but I mean, the tape we were using was always old tape. We yeah. were always kind of... You know, yeah, you buy, you buy the kind of twice-used stuff, right, from studios. That's what we used to do as well sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a, a, a little tape story that I heard uh, the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine called Jimmy, who's an, uh, you know, an engineer, and, and, and he was saying about how when you were doing tape edits, you would always cut to the snare beat on the two. Then you'd never cut to the kick on the one you'd always if, if you're doing if you're doing splice tape editing and the reason for that is that the two never swings so uh 
that it was always made made for a better cut that you wouldn't sort of uh, cut your kick. I so, never. I don't think I ever was was uh, was brave enough to edit multi tracks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, well, I mean, that was maybe you know uh, half inch sort of master editing maybe or but but I, I just thought it was quite an interesting idea that you'd always use the snare you china graph the snare and, and 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 put the cut on there rather than on the the kick i don't know if uh rich has any experience of that but i, I when he was telling me that i was thinking oh that makes a lot of sense it does doesn't it so yeah i don't know I, I i'm guessing rich you're nodding like you probably did i mean editing multi-track tapes i mean as i recall it the session would go like you know you do a number of drum takes or rhythm track takes generally and you go yeah that's really good the chorus here and you might then cut cut the entire drum track up but doing that on the live multi-track is a sort of terrifying balls of steel type of affair. Did you ever find yourself having to do Because it re- represents a lot of work and the only... Ver- Did you use to copy a tape first to do that? Because then you would lose, you might lose a generation, I suppose. You didn't always have two 24-track machines sitting side by side, wired up, That's tuned tr- up and ready. <laughs> That's true. Um, no, quite often what they do is punch in on basic track. Like they have the, After the basic was done, they'd send the drummer back out there you'd listen together to what was the bit that they wanted to fix. The engineer would rehearse in his mind, because he couldn't actually program it then, um, where he was going to get in and get out on this punch so that he didn't like cut off any symbols or create any kind of red flags in the listener's mind that said something is afoot here. And, uh, <laughs> and then people would play in, and it'd be two performances, a guy playing and a guy punching in. And uh, wow, that's quite scary. I, I actually that I remember something about that because certain multi tracks and remote combinations would have different latencies, wouldn't they? So you'd have to kind of get it a little bit ahead of the beat or whatever. Wow, yeah. Well, and as an example, that 3M machine you're talking about uh, earlier tends to be, at least in my experience, somewhat slower than the Studer machines I had been used to, which are among the finest electromechanical devices yeah. ever devised. <laughs> in bar none, you know, in any field, in any area, I think the yeah, Studer beautiful. machine from the, uh, from the late period of their development is just a marvel to behold. When you go inside that mm. thing, it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah, agreed. And I guess that had, anyway, it also had something yes, to, to do point, with the- To your point, the Studer's punched in a lot quicker, got the bias up a lot quicker, than the uh, 3M machine you were talking about, at least in my experience, and I used to really like working on scooter machines. There was an Ampex machine as well that uh, some people claimed had better bottom end than the scooter and uh, punched in quickly as well and would heat your house as a bonus. <laughs> wow. I think it's, it was that to do with how far the tape, uh, the repro and the play, uh, the, the record, the repro and the playback head were, because you'd have the, re- was the re the, which one was it? Was it the repro head was the one that you would mix from and the playback head was the one that was closer to the record head for overdubbing? Was that how it worked? I can't honestly repro, remember. Repro is the playback head. Record, you're talking repro head, uh, record head, and erase head. Ah. And uh, left to right, if you're traveling towards the right, if you're not reading Hebrew, um, it's uh, erase head, um, record head, repro head. Right. So there's a difference in timing between listening and the same at the same time between the repro head and the uh and the record head you can listen off the record head as well and so what the big deal in in, uh 
being able to punch in was was something at the time called cell sync, which allowed you to switch the monitoring to the um, record head on the track you were recording on once you punched in, so it would stay in time in the listener's ear. Oh but, yeah, that you put a delay on, wouldn't you? Yes, gosh, I. I oh wow. So, um, <clears throat> but anyway, yeah, those are your three heads, <laughs> and <clears throat> basically. In theory, what the alignment process is, is you standardize your output configuration. You use something that generates a known level, which is called a magnetic reference tape, uh, MRL tape, Magnetic Reference Laboratory. And the guy talks to you like this. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Kilohertz, <laughs> you know, like you get that kind of thing. And um, you'd basically tune up the output side of the machine first using a reference tape. Then you would stripe on a piece of tape that is representative of the formulation you're going to use. And you would record things, being able to view them through your already aligned outputs. You would then record things and adjust the record side so you got the kind of you know, result that you were after. Or, you know, it was theoretically close to flat as possible. Yeah, God, it, it, it's, it's, it's it, I mean, it is a funny, I mean, the whole th that whole thing is just kind of such a, a bygone, I mean, it was sort of the, the science of it, you know, it's like the lab coat kind of side of recording, which is no, not really so present these days, you know, as we all work from separate facilities and you don't have like it the is, tape. It is, but in a different way. Yeah. On some levels, it's more prevalent now because there's more of us doing it. It's just we're doing it with smaller and less, less expensive gear. That's very like true. Like this thing that doesn't work right now. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Our sympathies are with you, Rich. Uh, anyway, that, let's hear it for 456. Ampex 456. Uh, uh, great. And, and 457, I think. I remember seeing as well, but uh, it's hard to be. Yeah, it may even have gone to 496 or something. I mean, they, they, they started at 4. There was a point where 406 was like, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing. And this was like probably the 70s, I think. Um, and then by the end of the 70s, you had uh, 456. So they were counting up the four numeral sixes and i think it i don't know how, how much further it got but well um, i i like to think that we uh, if it's not too much further we will actually soon overtake the ampex formulation numerology in episodes of sonic talk so i'm feeling <laughs> kind of like yeah that's longevity right on brother excellent um right uh let's see there was a couple of things here did anyone see um oh let's do this one this one will be fun i, I think if it's this one it's not it's not that one it's this one a huge part of my mix technique is using parallel processes. What we've managed to do is take four of the chains from my mix template that I use most often on multiple sources and package them all into one unbelievably easy to use interface. Insert it on a track, you crank a few knobs and you're taking advantage of up to four processes all at once that are all combined. You're always blending it in with the unprocessed signal, which is the key to having a natural sounding instrument. Oh, that's harsh. And these headphones, anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's not a case of the pros. That's uh, Andrew Sheps. I, I must admit, I hadn't heard of him. I should have done, because, I mean, he's worked with Adele, Metallica, Jay-Z, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Black Sabbath, Lana Del Rey, you know, lots and lots of people. And he's 
I think he must have done a lot of par- he designed a parallel processing uh, workflows that he's basically got waves to kind of build into this simple interface. Uh, it's called uh, what is it actually called? I didn't actually uh, Shep's par- parallel. parallel particles. Parallel that's right. Particles. And the idea is that you blend it with the, the process with it, which is a, a standard recording technique, and it makes sense to put it into a plugin. And this is quite unique because. It's got a really, I mean, I would actually say almost willfully ugly and difficult to to look at interface. But from what I heard, he goes into some real detail about, you know, the depth, the the difference it makes. And it was quite astonishing. I guess it's designed to be quite light. So you put it across multiple channels. Uh, and then be able to, uh, you know, just process like individual drums and what have you. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. I don't know, Gaz, what did you make of it? I'll start Mm. with your sort of impressions, if that's all right. Well, I thought he's he's brilliant guy. He's a brilliant guy, and he's a brilliant he's a brilliant explainer as well. I thought it was a, I thought it was really really good. And I'm actually dead interested in this because I love parallel processing. And I also think that those particular combinations of because uh, I mean he's not talking about technical terms, is he? He's talking about the term thick. He's talking about the term bite. He's talking air, and he's talking sub. And uh, you know, and I think a lot of the time when you're doing a mix, those are very much elements that you're going to be kind of looking for and to be able to apply them in a parallel processing way i think it's brilliant i'm really excited about this i want to get it um but i think that uh yeah the the interface is a bit strange but i think you know because of the idea that they've reduced the amount of um user interaction to very very well you've just got essentially haven't you just like one knob for each one of those four processes plus an input and an output uh, there's also a frequency center for the uh sub uh, process as well i believe ah right okay um but you know I, I, i'm mixing an album at the moment and a lot of the time i do want those very those elements uh, I mean, it's funny, though, because Waves are continually selling the same processes <laughs> over and over again with different front ends. You know, they just use different producers kind of. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's a, in terms of, you know, product development and R&D yeah. recoup, no, it, ma- it makes sense, no, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's not really criticism. Um, but I think that this particularly has really piqued my interest because I'm doing an awful lot of parallel processing and sometimes can be a bit of a nuisance, can't it? When you have to set up, you know, I normally duplicate a, uh, a track and then will process apply to that track. And then I'll just use a, a blend of the two tracks against each other. So I'm using up two tracks, uh, to achieve that. I know there's other ways of doing it. That's just the way that I tend to do it. So the fact that this would just all be in the single, uh, track, I think makes it look like it's a great workflow. I, I really do like this. I got to be honest. I was well. I just let's ske- just have a look skeptical. at the interface. I mean, it's a map. <laughs> as as uh, I think, uh, very uh, says so. Biggest UI ever for five knobs. I mean, that's a fair point actually. Mm-hmm. Um, five knobs and two sliders it is but it's got uh, in the centre there's all sorts of indicators. It looks a bit like ah. a kind of launch tube for some kind of space. Craft. I like it. It's psychedelic. It's good. <laughs> you go for that. And it's psychedelics, good by me. I don't know, Rich, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm getting, do you, is there a sort of, you know, because you, you're, a, you're an experienced mix engineer, you know, you would presumably dig in and get involved in the individual elements that would make up these individual processes. Is there a sort of element of you thinks, I don't want to use this, it feels like it's too dumbed down for me, or doesn't it matter? You know, because is there an element of pride in not perhaps you, but perhaps you could see other producers kind of go, well, I'd rather do my own thing. It's, you know, it's more me or more mine. 
Well, when I step through the presets in some of these wonderful processing devices and listen to how they might fit into what I'm doing, I'm always thinking, well, why wouldn't I just do <laughs> this? So it's not a matter of pride so much as a matter of taste. And I understand the cookie cutter world into which they're trying to interject these products to make these processes easier for people who don't have that kind of experience to access or people who are sufficiently moved by his notoriety and his record making to want to have the tools that he says he used in order to make those things. So I understand all that and I would listen to it. Um, the likelihood that I don't know if it would fit or make things better. I'd, I'd, I'd hear it. And as far as the interface goes, it looks like a video game screen. Yeah, there is that. In fact, uh, there's uh, 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 in the uh, YouTube chat room, uh, Nurid says, looks like an electric light orchestra cover, which is not too far, <laughs> not too far from uh, from on the mark there. So, yeah, good, good call. I mean, I'm just wondering generally, because also there's the Waves uh, one knob, isn't there, which is a, a whole series of plugins, which are just, you know, more or less thing, which I'm guessing you know, has macros and scaling and it's doing stuff under the hood. But this notion of simplifying the process so that you can just add more to taste without having to be an expert in those things, I suppose that's a good thing. And perhaps in many ways, although does it further your skill and ability to understand what's going on? And, and you know, is it in the long run maybe going to do you uh, less good because of an experience? Well, like my tape experience, it may prove ultimately not to be information that's needed in order to get the job done in the world we live in today. Yeah. You happen to be. So I don't know. It seems to appeal to the way things that appear on your mobile devices appear and how they, how you interact with them. And I'm not unsympathetic to that. I think it's possibly a really good way to market these kinds of tools. I don't know, not being a marketing guy. So none of it seems that far-fetched to me. And yeah, typically, if I think I need parallel processing on something, I'll put up an aux fader and start parallel processing. Um, you know, shipping that same sound down to that fader and doing some other stuff to it. And uh, I, I guess I have sort of an old-school workflow in my head that I don't assume that young people have. And I don't necessarily even assume that it's necessary if you're listening carefully and getting good results. Yeah, I guess so. I suppose that's true. I mean, it, I, I guess, I don't know, Gaz, is, do you think it's simpler just to overdo everything because, you know, you think, well, more is better, you know, because you've got one knob? Oh, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, there is the danger of that. And also just this, when things are happening under the hood, you know, just not exactly being sure what it's doing. But at the same time, there's a plus side of that in that uh, having to use your ears rather than, you know, rather Thinking than... Thinking about the GUI, yeah. In intellectualizing about it, just going, actually, you know, I want the kick to have a bit more weight, so I'll just try turning up the sub one, I'll turn up the thick one, and, you know, I just, you know, just that's that sort of quite simplified way of uh, approaching it. I can imagine it'd be quite nice, actually, to map those parameters onto some external controller, like uh, like this thing, you know. Ah, uh, yes, uh, you've got one of the cool um, nano, uh, nano control studios. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it'd just be you know just by having only those limited choices and just really listening and listening to the way it's interacting with the mix i think it could be quite an interesting way of working i'd like to have a go on this and i'd like to have a go on it by 
doing as they suggest and, and putting it on every single track and just to see just to see what it sounds like and to see if it if it turns it into like a a completely over processed mess or i mean well, oh, i yeah, guess that's yeah. the thing with it being parallel processing you know you are always blending that kind of clean thing with the processed one so i i gotta say i do i'm quite i'm quite my interest is definitely peaked on this one i think um i yeah I'm going to look into it. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's 59 bucks at the moment, normal price, which seems like a steal for most any kind of plug-in price. That's a pretty good deal. Uh, normally 129 so you can check certainly check it out. Uh, I will say that uh, also in the chat room, it said it looked a bit like a... Uh, uh, a Pokemon uh, interface, which uh, rather, <laughs> which I thought was kind of because we've all seen Pokemon Go is uh, all over the place and people are freaking out about mm-hmm. it. All these people are sort of running across highways and stuff. I wonder if any have showed up in recording studios and ruined <laughs> any takes. <laughs> be, anyone got any stories there? I think it would be kind of a fun thing. Anyway, we'll leave that now and we'll go to uh, a message from our sponsors. Thank you very much. This is the Isotope Vocal Synth, multi-module vocal processor with Polyvox for harmony, five-part harmonies. There's a vocoder section as well. Compuvox, which is more kind of glitchy, computerized speech effects, more like your craftwork thing, and Talkbox, which... Uh, you may know from uh, certain hits from the 70s. But if you want to check this out, uh, basically you can get a free download demo uh, from isotope.com forward slash vocal synth. Think outside the box. Once again, we thank uh, Isotope for their continued sponsorship of the show. Very much welcome. In fact, we had a competition last week, as we have one this week as well. And we asked you to tweet the hashtag. Uh, uh, what was it, the hashtag? The hashtag was uh, synthesize and the hashtag vocal synth to us. And we have a winner. The winner is somebody called The Real Ken Chase. And he said, please, Isotope, ask Nick and all... Sonic, old Sonic Talk guests to synthesize their voices using vocal synth. See how he used both tags there? Very creative use of the 140 characters of Twitter in the next podcast. We didn't get time to do that, but we may at some point see if we can uh, insert a little bit. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, the real Ken Chase, at the real Ken Chase. If you want to get in touch, you can pick up your prize right now. Now, the other thing, uh, we've also got a competition to run this week. They're giving away yet another copy. So if you want to win Isotope's vocal synth, I want you to tweet the hashtag IamRobot, which is a kind of homage to uh, Tara Bush's uh, live shows from a year or so back, and the hashtag vocal synth. that's the hashtag IamRobot, one word, and the hashtag vocal synth to at SonicState and at IsotopeInc. That's on Twitter. Uh, so if you tweet those, you'll be entered for the competition. We'll pick a winner next time. I want to say thank you very much for their continued sponsorship of the show okay right let's see um who wants to do uh is there any of these topics that anybody feels particularly akin to i thought the hearing loss was kind of interesting anyone see that i I know i put it in late but uh, this was news that um scientists boffins as i like to say are developing uh this new drug which apparently they're working on mice which it replaces the cilia in the inner ear because it each humans are born with uh, 50, roughly 15,000 of these in each year, which they degrade over time and they don't actually replace themselves. So this, they've developed to try and develop a drug which actually causes them to regenerate, which would 
essentially mean that your hearing could be restored if you were losing any top end or had any other issues. And um, I just thought that's a really interesting call. I'm not sure how, I mean, I, I expect, I know my top end is dropping because obviously, you know, I've, li- I've been doing lots of live sound in my past and, you know, it's bound to have had a, 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 an impact. I wonder what would happen if I actually, whether I'd want this to happen at the moment because it would affect the way I hear things now and I'd sort of have to relearn. I don't know how you feel about this, Rich. I mean, I'm sure your ears are in pretty good condition, um, uh, a man of your skills. But, I mean, do you think this is, uh, this could be pretty cool, right? Especially for um, perhaps when we're in our dotage and we're going, hey, what's that? You know, you could actually get a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more uh, uh, engagement. Oh, you seem to be muted. <laughs> or maybe it's my what? ears. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> um, you know, if everybody wishes this could happen, that you could have your hearing restored to the way it was when you were a baby. Because even without the loud culture, the way I was taught as a kid, even without the kind of uh, regular noise influx that we have grown accustomed to in the industrial age, uh, apparently the human ear hearing, particularly in males, uh, drops off in the high frequencies as you age, which yeah. means I shouldn't be able to do the damn thing. No, but, um, and I'm aware of the, I've had my ear hearing tested, and I know where my pluses and minuses are and why, but I don't think I really, really calculate that while I'm listening to stuff, because your brain is a fantastic compensating mechanism, especially if both sides are working. And, um, I think for the most part, our brains will do a fair amount of compensation calculation to try to present you with some kind of an impression that represents full band audio, even as we age. At least so far, mine seems to work, except for with these headphones. No, I'm just kidding. But um, so, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if you could snap your fingers and get your hearing back? Or wouldn't it be nice if you could snap your fingers and lose these next 50 pounds or whatever? Um, and, and hopefully it doesn't, nobody gets hurt and hopefully it sounds the same, which I find really hard to believe, but okay. Well, I think, I think perception would change. I mean, I think that's the thing because we're so, like you say, the brain is compensating all the time. And if you suddenly had like the, the, the veil removed, it would, it might be overstimulating and really difficult to process that additional data because we're used Mm. to the way that we, our consciousness is part of, you know, what, what we're Mm. perceiving and we know that we need to listen to this or we need to listen to that. And, And when you're mixing, perhaps you're in a slightly different space. Um, I don't know, Gaz. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, my, my wife is uh, 100% deaf in one ear, and I was talking to her about this earlier. And Did she listen? Her, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I was asking her if she would be interested in this, and she was actually saying probably not because of what you were just saying, that it might be a bit uh, overwhelming. And she also said that the benefits of her single ear would it probably wouldn't outweigh it because she loves the fact that she could just turn on to her when she's sleeping she can turn on to her good ear and i can continue making loads of racket and she sleeps clean through so she doesn't <laughs> want to give that up <laughs> but uh um but um what was interesting about that article was uh the fact that it was um that there was various companies competing about it so which um which means that this whole process is entering into uh, a bit of a race because of the uh, 
the, the huge uh, financial implications of them actually being able to. Yeah, bring I'd this imagine. Yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, although I would have to say the thing that I didn't like is their work. They apply it directly to the area in the mm. inner ear, which I don't like the sound of that much because that means yeah. you've got to pierce the eardrum. I, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. I know it, that was a bit. Mind, mind you, you know, lots of medical processes these days are unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, oh, my friend was just outlining some of the things that he's happened to have done recently, which involved his uh, Johnson, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes, I think if it's going to improve your, your hearing to that degree. Um, but I, I, I tested my ears the other day with, uh, well, with a frequency sweep and um i can still do around 16k it sort of only starts to go around 17k so i was dead i was really pleased about that right. um because i feel that you know that was it was still giving me a that kind of what i think is kind of crystally top end um, oh, well, that's, that's good i mean i'm not sure i'd be the ca same case there. i'll tell you one thing that was also interesting in the article is they said that um the only species where this doesn't happen is songbirds apparently songbirds cilia regenerate so their <coughs> hearing because presumably their you know their communication is at higher frequency so they kind of need it for mating and all sorts of other things whereas i suppose we don't really need it for that uh, mm. not not generally speaking anyway uh uh, but mm -hmm. I suppose the other thing is, obviously, we've got a generation of kids who've got earbuds and very loud MP3, so their hearing is more likely to be compromised, perhaps at an earlier age, because of the way that they listen to music as well. So, that, you know, it might have, you know, it, it might be very uh, in sort of with foresight that these medical companies are, are actually uh, mm. doing it. We've got a little tool here because you used to have cats don't have cats anymore so to keep the mice away we've got this little thing that plugs into the um plugs into the mains and generates really ultra high frequency um audio which apparently scares off any would-be rodent invaders right. um i've been trying to see if i can detect it using tools to see if it's getting in because apparently it puts it into the uh electricity supply and creates this um ultra high frequency Jesus. i can't imagine that does much good for interference in the studio <laughs> I, I know i because that when when my wife bought it i was like "Ooh," but i haven't been able to detect anything so i've tried it on and off and seen if it makes any difference um but yeah i can't i definitely can't hear that when it's on <laughs> Oh, well, maybe you would if you uh, if you did this. Anyway, uh, interesting, fun little bit. Um, OK, let's see what else we have here that... Uh, oh, yeah, let's have this one. Uh, is this the right one? No, that's not it. That's the old Behringer teaser. This is one of those wonderfully pointless and unnecessarily complicated things that just we seem to enjoy as topics. This is the uh, Onde Magnetique by a chap called Scott Campbell. Essentially, you choose... Uh, from what I can tell, is it... It, it, um, it controls the motor speed that, that the knob... The knobs above those keys are for setting the individual pitches of the keys, and on the left-hand side you have this other pad which triggers it and gets the, or engages the playback head or into playback. And it sounds like it does... You just put cassettes in which you record at half speed and then play back at double speed apparently because then the variations in free it just seems like a wonderfully pointless thing 
So it's like a sort of Mellotron, monophonic Mellotron in a cassette. But it's also CV control, so you can plug CVs into it and, and run it off a sequencer, which may or may not be of, of interest or excitement to any of us. But I don't know, Gaz, I thought this might appeal to you because it's almost... Yeah. It's it it's almost sort of uh, pointless, but yeah, it does something quite unique. Maybe. Uh yeah, I I do. I love it. I think <laughs> <Oops. it's... laughs> I should switch. To, I should switch to you. Your... I love it because it is the sort of thing that if you're working on a production and you're looking for just something to go on the top, and it's actually these kind of things you can kind of just sort of see them as you know bit of fun, but. If I'm working with non-technical people like producing, I love to, you know, it's one of the reasons I, I love my OP1. I love to sort of put it in the hands of someone who I'm working with and and just really just say, look, have a go with this. Don't worry what it is. Just have a play with it until you, you know, and just doodle. When you're looking for sort of maybe sort of, you know, top textures and little bits of, um, you know, icing, just, just the kind of candy on the top there. And I think this would be brilliant for that because there is an unquestionably tapes well you know it's a, it has got that tape sound and i think the slur and jitter and all the kind of tapiness of it i think just would lend a real kind of uh quality to it so yeah i think it's cool i i, I yeah i mean it's like one of them non-essential things but you know wow as i say when i'm working with people they gravitate more they would gravitate more to things like that than they would say something that was very you know complex and technical and knobby and you know things like that really do appeal to, to certain types of people so yeah I, I think this kind of thing's cool and i think it would definitely have a like a, 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 a like some sort of presence within a recording that would be quite hard to achieve in other ways so yeah it's an interesting idea i mean i suppose the thing about it is it, it's sometimes musical toys are good ways of getting people in. I know, Rich, I, I noticed that uh, they're, they're out now on pre-order. They, you could pre-order it. It was 285 bucks. Have you, uh, did you manage to get your order in before, uh, before they closed it all off? <laughs> no, I haven't ordered one. And I'm just seeing it here for the first time, actually, but I think it's quite clever and cute. You say almost $300? I don't know. We'll see if people want to spend. And, and I, I guess, what did they supply you with cassettes that have these sounds? That I can't tell you. It's possible they do. They must. I mean, how else would it work? Um, you can record. I think you can record like a sustained note onto the onto the tape on a regular cassette, and then put it in. So you could just record, you know, whatever the because you tune it to you tune the keys however you want them. So each each key is tuned. So you set the the scale up how you want. So you just create a constant tone. I guess you could put a chord in there as well, couldn't you? You could put like a yeah. and that would be kind of interesting. So there's all sorts of ways you could. Uh, you need a you need a normal cassette recorder to record your own sustained note. Onto. How is it retuning everything? I, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I, what it does, uh, no, I, what it does is it, it it's a modified cassette recorder playback How that allows you to take the control voltage out, and the control voltage then uh, affects the the playback speed of the tape motor. So the tape inside it is whatever tape you put in. So when so you, they provide the tape transport as well. Yes, so you get the the box and the and the cassette, and the the box and the player. Because it's actually modulating the playback speed of the tape. Yeah. As you press these buttons. Yeah. That's why you heard a little bit of uh, um, um, Portamento in there, I think. 
I, I would expect, but then I'm thinking mechanical motor, and I don't know to what extent. I don't, I don't know if this is direct drive system. I don't know what... I think it's just a base. I think if we look at the actual... Uh, I think it's just a really... Let's see. Uh, oh, that's not it. It's uh, this one. on the So it's literally... It's a specific... So that's the cassette synthesizer. So it's it uses... I think you get a... Uh, let me see what you get with it. I think you get the, this tape drive as well. As far as I understand, the own one cassette player. So when recording on cassette, you plug a line level so you can record onto it. You set the input level from the source and then you play it back. You set the record time to double because I think you have switches on some of those cassettes will do half and double speed. So it looks like you record your own sound into it and then you play it back at a different speed. And that's it. You're good to go. I kind of like that. I like the idea of that. I like it. You're already sold, Gaz. I think you might have to wait till they show up on eBay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe. I do like it, though. I do think it is good. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, it's I cool. like it. I like it. Well, I am glad to hear that. Um, anyway, uh, actually, ondmagnetic.com is where you can find that. So if you want to find out a bit more about it, it looks like kind of a fun thing. Uh, as I said, slow news week. But uh, um, <laughs> what else have we got? We've got the... Uh, oh, yeah, this was the thing. I mean, yesterday in the UK, it was 33 degrees plus. So it's 90 degrees just in the shade. If you're in an attic studio, gas like yours, perhaps, I'm guessing probably over 100 degrees with the equipment on as well. And it got me thinking about the whole notion of sort of extreme recording because certainly as studios have become less prevalent you know you used to go to a studio which had climate control you know live rooms all of that stuff to make it kind of possible for you to work in nowadays we're all working in kind of our own facilities many times and it's certainly if you live in a country where you know it's not always hot and you might not have air conditioning that you've then got to decide how to you know you've but you've still got to work i mean you were saying that you are working trying to mix an album at the moment which i can't imagine is a lot of fun in the heat in your studio right well we were recording vocals uh, it's actually the last bit of tracking for this album i'm working on uh, a band called schnauzer it's brilliant really good band uh and uh recording uh holly the bass player doing her vocals and um and well, it's a motorway quite nearby, so when the windows are open, it lets in way too much background noise. But uh, it was stullifying in here on Sunday. But we were on window duty. We would like, you know, record some vocals as soon as she finished vocals and she was having a little break. Windows open, <laughs> blast the room with air, and then slam the room shut. Went for as long as we could, <laughs> you know. So yeah, crazy really. I mean, um, but yeah, it's hard. I mean, it really is hot up here um but uh it's also just just makes i just want to go outside sit in the garden and work i I was wanting to work outside and that's quite tricky to do with um you know (laughs) certainly with my computer i don't want to ship it all down outside but um yeah, but I don't also want to be too complaining about good weather. <laughs> no, it's it's so. tricky, isn't it? I mean, I get, I guess it. Rich in the US, I mean, you know, your your climate control thing, you know, it, it's much more of an established thing. So you you live in a a place where you know you probably in your studio there probably is climate control because it gets really hot or it gets really cold and you've got to keep going. But there's there's that transition in there from professional facility to kind of like home studio where things start to where it's actually quite difficult to get because I mean. It's not just a matter of putting air conditioning in. I mean, I've got an air conditioning unit over here, and that's one of the reasons I use this 
dynamic mic is because I'm not picking up the massive roaring wideband noise that is coming out of that thing, but it's making it possible to work in here. So if I was actually recording, and certainly if we're filming there, we have to turn all that off because it's just too loud, you know, and, and quiet air conditioning is really expensive, or I mean, it used to be. I don't know if that's... So you could spend, you know, as much on your air con. I don't know what a good quiet air con system would cost. Have you got any ideas on cost for that sort of thing? Thousands, I'd imagine. Many thousands. Oh, yeah, sure, thousands. Um, it has a lot to do with volume versus velocity in terms of cooling a space with a minimum amount of acoustical impact to it. So you're basically trying to move a larger volume of air more slowly because it's the velocity through an narrow tube that causes most of your noise and resonance. That said, I'm no expert um, in air conditioning, but it does give us an appreciation for what was valuable about those studio spaces that perhaps wasn't as obvious to us once we'd been in them for a little while. When you first walk in, you notice everything seems quiet. You seem really detached from the outside world. But um, ultimately, uh, that's hard to achieve. And yeah, you get the guy outside with the leaf blower, or a truck goes by, or an airplane flies over, or any number of things. The phone rings. It's uh, And then plus, we have to maintain our own gear now. You'd walk into a studio and expect that the vast majority of it was going to work. Um, today, you know, when... It may or may not. ...something that didn't work, it's going to be me figuring out why. That, no, that's um, a really interesting point, because I remember the transition. You know, I remember going to studios uh, earlier on in my career where you'd go and it would be like, okay, we'll just fix it. You know, this doesn't seem to work. The engineer would, or the producer would turn and go, oh, this, and then someone would come in and go, right, okay. They'd either swap it out straight away or someone would be straight in to fix it. And obviously, as the maintenance departments have been, you know, they, used, they, they then used to centralise it, so you have it amongst maybe a, a few studios, so the guy couldn't get to you for... A, today or for a few hours and that sort of thing has tailed off and now we're kind of it's like if it doesn't work kind of tough really at the moment if, if, it, if it's if it's unfixable kind of not being able to work right well it's harder to find highly trained techs in terms of that kind of response and that kind of gear and I, you know back then you were looking at multi big multi-channel analog desks where there was redundant electronics in every single Things. So the chances that you might have a replacement part were a little greater for, for openers. Um, but yeah, studio staffs got cut back, studios went out of business. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole long story about why and how it got to be this way. But it sure does give us a, an appreciation for the way it was when a studio could afford to maintain a full-time tech staff so that their clients were more properly serviced. Yeah, well, maybe you have to make the decision. Okay, here's the decision. On-call tech or climate control? Hmm. At the moment, I know what I go for, but but yeah, it's very. <laughs> it's well, because yeah, you don't have three quarters of a million dollars worth of hardware upon which your entire business is dependent. Sure. Mm. Yeah, but, but if you if you were running an old school studio with those, you know, a couple of those. Screw tape machines I was talking about, the 72 input analog console made by one of the major manufacturers, and and a whole room full of outboard gear and a really, really nice yeah. mic closet, million bucks deep. You got to keep that stuff working <laughs> so you can keep making money with it. You know, it's not, yeah. 
you can't, you know, it, there's a whole different attitude to us having our own stuff. That's really, yeah, that's, no, that's really interesting because also we've got the, 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 the technology, the technology curve back at maybe 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the speed of um, technological advancement that we weren't at this point in the curve. We were sort of probably down here. So that investment in technology is going to remain constant, you know, and the amortization and what you can get for it is, is actually, you know, it works out. You might get two, three, four, five years out of it. But now with the curve like this, no chance. I mean, there's just no way you're going to be able to, if you spend a hundred grand or whatever on a desk, or whatever it may be, or a Pro Tools rig, or whatever. It's not in three years' time. It's going to be out of date. I'm not so sure if you bought an API console brand new right now from API, that five years from now it would be worth less. Ah, uh, no, that's true. I think now because there's uh, there's there's more spe- You know, it, it's now there's an appreciation and the spec the specification for it. But it's interesting. I wonder if they build the same level of redundancy in now that they would have done back then because they know. I, I just yeah, it's a curious dynamic though. Hmm. They're trying to. I, most of these companies that do these reissues, uh, you know, of legendary gear, are trying to stick as close as possible to the original designs, given the availability of the parts. And in some cases. They will actually go to some great lengths to recreate parts that don't exist in terms of ordering and volume or whatever, trying to make them themselves. Um, but they try to get as close as possible with the parts that are available, and that includes everybody. Yeah. Silverheim, you know, UA, who sell hardware, you know, based on the original 610 design. Um, Neve, you know, anybody who's marketing underneath a legendary name is having to live up to the standard that that gear set. Sure. I suppose. I, I, I suppose, in some ways, though, they they would uh, benefit from the. Perhaps it's cheaper to manufacture in some ways than it was because there's more electronics in the world. I don't know whether that's the case, but that the, yeah, that's probably a whole, a whole new uh, and and uh, tangential discussion that we could have for hours. But yeah, well, people know. People will know, and there is a cottage industry that's pretty well established and has been for a long time of guys who make old school Neve modules to design. Mm. They call them Neve modules. But there's a guy called Brent Averill, for example, who's done a lot of Neve uh, based work. And so there are guys who, even when the main companies weren't interested in the nostalgia aspect, and they all seem to be these days, um, there were individual entrepreneurial guys who dug the sound of this stuff who would actually set about uh, set up a shop to recreate this legendary device with a different name and a different faceplate. Yeah. Which, yeah. that, it's interesting, guys. It brings up to, because we were talking about replace or repair, weren't we, earlier? Because you said mm. you were having an issue. And I'm just wondering, you know, because that's actually not a choice that many people get. But what what was it that went down in your studio recently? Or is... is... Just one of my monitors has started to get a little bit funny at bottom end you know only when it's past a certain volume level but you know i've been using the same monitors for the car i think it's 15 years now so you know so i'm thinking what do i do this just i've just started to detect this issue so you know get it get it fixed or is it time to maybe upgrade so and that and, and that then that was our dialogue then wasn't it that 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 actually it's not so easy to get things fixed you know it's much easier 
to buy new. And, well, yeah, that, know, no, that's true. But I mean, I suppose at least with speakers, you could probably it's pr- most likely to be the cone. So you probably get the, a new driver, yeah. and to yeah. change and to change your listening experience. I mean, I know you'd yeah. probably love to just buy some new monitors, just because we all well, enjoy the process of purchasing. <laughs> yeah. But in fact, what would that bring? Yeah. It wouldn't actually be such a good idea, maybe in that situation. Mm-hmm. No, and you're absolutely right. We often just look for excuses to buy new stuff because it's great to get new stuff. And, you know, just I've had these speakers for 15 years, so, you know, maybe it's time for a change. Spray them a different colour and get a new bass driver. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm using Genelec monitors, uh, which I really like. Uh, But I am aware of the... I'm using the old 1030s here, which are just about the right size for this little room I'm in. Uh, But... Uh, a while back, I had a pair of the Munro eggs here plugged in at the same time as my Genelex, and it really made me aware of... I could really hear the um, the cabinet resonant. It, it, I could hear the boxiness of the Genelex relative to the Munro eggs. The eggs of you know, these yeah. really you know, egg-shaped speakers. Um, and I know that the later Genelex have kind of gone more for a, a less of a box shape. They've gone more for... More over, uh, yeah, over. Overly, uh, and I was certainly aware of that. So it's always stuck in my mind. Maybe you know these monitors. You know, uh, I could do with maybe up- upgrading them. But uh, but and this is coming back to the point you're just saying. I've been working with these for 15 years. I've done enormous amounts of work with them. I've done you know literally hundreds of projects with them, and I know them inside out, and I can make sort of reasonable snap judgments on them because of my familiar- familiarity with them. And to gain that familiarity with a new set of speakers take a long, long time. So, yeah, so, you know, that that is the the thing there, isn't it? You know, yeah, uh, definitely. So, I think what I'd, Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I'd, what I'd probably do is get them fixed and get another set and then have them as a... You know, an alternative. Off, you know, so transition. So you could try. So you get the best of both. Spend more. Do you get? T- you get double purchase. <laughs> <laughs> then you might have to think about some stands and how you're going to. So, um, Rich, uh, this is interesting because so I mean, when you're purchasing stuff either for your place or for your client, do you think about the repairability of it? Is that a big factor in your deciding? So if you think, well, I love this. It's really cool, but you know it may not be so easy to fix. It might be a replace every, if anything ever goes wrong. Do you, ever, do you think along those terms or do you just think, well, if it goes down, we'll get some more or whatever? How do you tend to approach that? Well, it's always a consideration, but it's not the same level of consideration for all devices. For example, we're talking about speakers. And now we have two kinds of speakers. We've got passive and then we've got stuff with electronics in them. And so you're going to evaluate them differently. But if if something becomes known for being unreliable or for failing under certain circumstances that are typical of yours, you're obviously going to stay away from them. But there aren't that... Um, mostly, I try to be driven by quality of sound kind of considerations. Right. And in the playback world, most gear is fairly reliable and seems to work most of the time. But... Um, <laughs> but when you get into things that are electromechanical or you get into musical instruments, that's a whole different realm, especially if you're taking musical instruments on the road or if you're taking gear on the road. Um, I can give you an example of a now much highly revered clock module that basically fell apart in three gigs on the road. So it's not really good for people who go on the road. Sure. Now, hopefully we've addressed that since then, and I'm not going to out them by saying who it was. But, 
the point is that um, when so, one of the reasons why I choose to use the gear I use on the road is because it's highly reliable. Right. Yeah. That definitely for that consideration, I can understand that. So for you know, it depends on what you're looking at for what purpose, and you know it to the degree to which. But you're always assessing its reliability. Nobody wants to buy a piece of junk that's going to fall apart soon. No, I, I, I suppose not. But, so I, on some level, you know that. You don't want to buy some piece of junk you believe is going to fall apart soon, regardless of whether you're buying, you know, an air conditioner, a microphone, a computer, a little synthesizer, or, you know, a printing machine that prints out these. Um, you know, nobody's going to buy something that they believe is going to fail, but then the degree to which you factor it in depends on what your purpose is. Right. Do you think, I mean, because one thing that you see certainly in the uh, domestic market when you're buying white goods, you know, there's a point at which where you say, well, would you like to buy extended warranty? That means, you know, if anything happens, someone will either fix it or it'll get, you know, and you get the same with gas supplies, water supplies. It seems that that, that sort of approach to critical musical stuff, or, or at least I'm not aware of it, it must be the case that you must be able to do that. But it seems be we seem to be more in a kind of, okay, you know, we'll just send you a new one and we might try and fix the old one, but it'll probably end up in landfill. I mean, do you think there is a market for that? I mean, I guess everybody's pushing the price down. That's part of the problem. We, the consumer sort of it demands and expects it to be as cheap as possible. They want the moon on a stick for, you know, for as little money as possible. I don't know if there's any mileage of that. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I remember, Gaz, in the past, there were these programs that certain audio dealers would offer that kind of thing. Do you remember any of that or am I uh, hallucinating in the heat? <laughs> like a sort of trade-in not a trade-in but a kind of uh, servicing agreement i suppose if you buy anything from them then it has an additional kind of warranty or process or uh, whatever i don't know oh uh, i'm not sure uh i mean like a few years ago like manufacturers started offering five-year warranties didn't they you know yeah for f sorry not manufacturers uh, retailers started offering five-year warranties um i think that's dropped off a little bit now um but no, I'm sorry, Nick. I, I don't remember. No, that. no. Okay. Well, it's just a thought. I guess in my, I guess the thing is, a lot of the stuff is is so cheap in terms of cost. I mean, not cheap in the American sort of uh, sense of the word. I don't know. Anyway, um, that feels like. Can I, speak, can I speak to extended warranties for a minute? Yeah. Um, again, it depends on the device. Um, for the most part, extended warranties is huge business, and those guys are really highly motivated financially to try to sell you one whenever you're buying whatever it is you're buying. Um, and the reason why they're motivated to sell them is because the vast majority of them don't end up having to be... Yeah, not, claim, not claimed against, yeah. ...profit for the company that's extending the risk. That said, on certain kinds of electromechanical devices, say clothes dryers, dishwashers, things where you've got moving parts that are being subjected to stresses continually when they're being in operation... In some cases, it might make sense, and if it's sufficiently cheap, you spend the extra whatever fifty hundred to get the warranty out to five years. And some now with computer products, it's a little questionable depending on the cost because you don't really expect the computer to work I mean, to last functionally in terms of its current environment for more than about five years because typically operating systems move on, things change. You can't run the current kinds of stuff. So yeah. I don't have the same long view, but when you buy like a bed mattress or a washing machine or a refrigerator, you're hoping that thing's going to last a while. And so in that case, the cost-benefit thing 
gets down to, well, how much stress do I think we're going to, how likely is this thing to fail? You're basically betting against all that reliability you just based your purchase decision on. Yeah, I suppose so. So financial- And that bugs the hell out of me. Yeah. Either I believe it's a good product or I don't. And there's some part of it that bugs the heck out of me. My wife, on the other hand, is a big fan of extended warranty. So, <laughs> right. um, and she's a pretty smart lady. So uh, who am I to say? I, I, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I get it. And they, people make a fortune on them. That's why they so aggressively sell Well, them. yeah, risk and all of that. We know where that got us in the past. But anyway, we should probably stop. I've got to, uh, I've got to head off. Uh, I've got to, we've got a couple of Italian students staying with us. And I just wanted to share, a t- we, we started talking about music last night. And uh, they were talking about the sort of summer hits and they mentioned, I can't remember the name of the artist, but like we have, you know, sort of novelty records that get everywhere that, you know, you hear on the radio, they're ringtones, they're synced to everything. They they have a term for this in Italy and I love it. It's called Tormento. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I think is absolutely what a beautiful word it's, lo- it's lovely hearing, to, hearing them speak because it's such a li- beautiful language to listen to and even though they're supposed to be talking English because that's why they're here to learn English but I just thought Tormento was, uh, was great and, I, and this is because uh, I've now I went from I know four Italian words to I'm, I'm now in, in double figures and Tormento is one of them I just think it's a great one so it seems like a fun place to end so um, oh, it's got to be a can we call a show Tormento. Tormento. We could. Or the other. Well, the other. Ch- the other one was, uh, I think, from Lady Aptitude, which was uh, wonderfully pointless. Which I quite like the idea of the title as well. But yeah. So either one. Um, and I think what I might do is I'll, I'll play out with the because uh, the, the obviously we we didn't want to talk about the Behringer synth so every week, but the, this week there was another teaser and we found out that it's a polysynth of some Poly! description. Uh, at, 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 it seems to indicate four voices. So uh, yeah, the plot thickens. So that's kind of. <laughs> You heard four. Ah, okay, right, okay. Well, I, I couldn't discern any other voices in, in that particular teaser. Anyway, so I want to say thank you very much to our guests. Uh, first of all, well, before we go, actually, I should just say, uh, don't forget, if you want to enter to win the uh, Isotope Vocal Synth, uh, tweet the hashtag IamRobot and the hashtag Vocal Synth to at SonicState and at Isotope Inc. That's the hashtag IamRobot robot and the hashtag vocal synth to at sonic state and isotope inc and i want to say thank you very much to our guests uh, rich thank you for joining us this week i'm glad to hear you're back home back for a little while or are you heading off into the uh, into the world once again to play disco music for the people i leave tomorrow oh wow where are you going now uh we're going to the philadelphia area to the minneapolis st paul area to the kansas city area then a couple of gigs in California, a gig in Las Vegas, and a gig in Arizona. So wow. it's uh, eight shows in the next two weeks, and uh, then I'll be back for a bit. Well, lovely to have you with us, Rich, and have a great trip, and uh, um, and thank you very much, as I said again. And also, uh, thank you very much to Gaz Williams there um, in Bristol, which you probably should be getting on with the work now, though I'd imagine it's probably <laughs> even hotter in your studio at the end of the day. You need, you'll have to work all night, do night shifts. That's probably the answer. I, I, you know, working through the night is just the way I work as well, really, to be honest. You know, I, I'm just much much more effective working at night uh so yeah so it's a more of a justification for doing that really because it is a touch on the antisocial thing but um yeah i got loads of work to do so yeah <laughs> all right well um, I, I, I appreciate you taking the time out guys thank you 
No, it's a pleasure. I just love it. I love being here. And, and thanks to everyone for, again, tuning in. It's such a thrill. OK, well, we'll say goodbye. I'm going to play us out with the Behringer uh, teaser, which I think is a minute or so. So uh, in case you've missed it, uh, we'll play it out. Cause I, I, like I said, I didn't want to talk about it again, but uh, we'll play it nonetheless. Beautiful. It's that tour mod on that second oscillator. You've got that thick PWM. And each note tracking a different LFO rate, which gives you that instant, just moody sounds bigger than it is. It's a proper uh, agile carpenter yeah, yeah. kind of sound there. It doesn't just kind of sound like everything else that you might have heard. I'm already just thinking like, oh God, I just want it on my out on the album I'm working on. But there's so much to kind of play and discover. Do we have to go back tonight?